Well, I invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're continuing through our uh, sermon series this fall in this uh, book that uh, we we find uh, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, after Romans, but before you get to Hebrews, and was written to that early church that Paul, the apostle himself, was involved in uh, helping to to form and, and build up in its early years. Uh, between the years 50 and 55 A.D. or so, we've seen some of the nature of this particular church body. We're getting a picture for who they are as we read different uh, ones of the Apostle Paul's letters in Scripture. We kind of get a picture for who that church was. And if we've you know, ever had that opportunity, as we probably most have, of visiting a church here or there, seeing another church, maybe in another town or a different church in our own community, we realize that in many ways, churches are kind of like people. They have personalities, have a certain uh, identity to them. And, and we've seen that, unfortunately, for the Corinthians and uh, perhaps for uh, us here today as well, that the Corinthians struggle with a sort of spiritual pride. It wasn't necessarily that they weren't interested in the things of the kingdom of God, but they like to wear them more as a badge or as a jersey than to actually wear them on the playing field, to actually get in there and play the game. As we look at this passage today, we're going to see right off the bat that uh, Paul is going to allude to the fact, and it's a little bit, you'll, you'll have to sort of track with it for the first couple of verses, but let me help you get oriented. Paul is going to allude to the fact that, that the Corinthians are even sort of celebrating the sacraments of God, baptism going through that water. Uh, the Lord's Supper, having food and drink from the Lord, they're even sort of taking those things, which are messages of, of grace and, and messages of dependence upon the Lord, and they're wearing them sort of as badges without necessarily looking at how those things should enter their hearts and change their lives. In the same way, we might take pride from our baptism or our participation in the things of worship, or we might have some particularly moving emotional experience in a worship service, or we might just be excited about the fact that we go to church or are a member of the church and, and, and nevertheless easily forget to put that in play once we walk out of here at 1115 on Sunday. So, too, it seems the Corinthians we're struggling. And it's interesting then the way that the Apostle Paul seeks to do this, and that is to attach their situation and ours to today to the Old Testament people of God, to what they went through in the Exodus, both the badges that they kind of laid hold of, the jerseys they wanted to wear, and then the, the fumbled plays, the incomplete passes that they uh, failed to run on the field of play, spiritually speaking. And we'll remember as we look at this, again, we'll turn to the passage in a second, that the Apostle Paul is not saying that the Corinthians have to do these certain things in their life, demonstrate a perfectly transformed life in order to get their salvation. He's reminded them in the Corinthians, book of Corinthians already that there's a gift of, from God. He tells them in Ephesians, tells us in Ephesians that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not by works, so no one may boast. Second Corinthians, uh, uh, another book right after First Corinthians tells us, Second Corinthians 5, that uh, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a message of grace. The Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians to know that. But he's reminding them that Jesus came not only to break the penalty of sin, but to break the power of sin. To now allow us to live a truly transformed lives. I think you'll see that message here as we look at these verses and get very, very helpful instruction on how we can not just wear that jersey, not just get on that playing field, but learn to block and tackle in the spiritual life. So read along with with me silently as I read aloud 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 13. I want you to know, brothers, That our fathers were all under the cloud. He's talking about the Old Testament people. And all passed through the sea. We're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would be pleased for the good of our spiritual life, relationship with you, growth and obedience and walking with you, that you'd be pleased to reveal to us. Those places in our lives where we are cherishing uh, the jersey that we wear as part of your team, your people, but not actually running the plays, not actually playing in the field of play in the way that you desire for us to and maybe even running the wrong way on the field. Father, would you help us to see those things for our good? And for your glory, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, football season is uh, pretty fun, isn't it? Uh, Whether your team is a college squad, a pro team, or it's your kids' flag or tackle team that you're cheering for, you, you get excited about getting behind your team and rooting for them. I know I do. And whether you watch the game on TV or have the privilege of actually attending the contest, one of the most exciting parts is actually when the game is about to begin, isn't it? 
for the pros and the college folks, they gather in that tunnel. And usually the TV cameras kind of show them back in all stacked up in the tunnel, kind of almost like legions ready to come out for a, a battle. They've got a professionally made banner, usually of some sort, industrial fog smoke machine to add even more drama to it. Uh, paid cheerleaders, perhaps, or scholarship ones anyway, to cheer for them coming out through that tunnel and emerging through that onto the field to the shouts and accolation of the fans. Maybe you're just out on your kids' field. Maybe you don't get to one of those uh, big games as much, but the scenario is similar, isn't it? They gather over and, and try to run through. Maybe mom's made a, a banner of some sort, painted as best she could to the, to the shouts of grandmas and grandpas gathered around as they emerge onto the, to the field. We know that picture of coming out with their jerseys on, ready to play the game, the excitement of it. What we see in these verses today, the same kind of image laid out for the people of God. They have this identity in the Lord. They have this identity in Christ, which is their team. These celebrations that they participated in, for them, they were kind of redemptive acts that God performed bringing them through the Red Sea, surrounding them with this cloud over them, providing for them with food, manna from heaven that was, you know, not only physical sustenance, but gracious, a powerful reminder that God was their provision. God was the one who would sustain them. But sadly, uh, like us, when they get onto the spiritual playing field, They don't carry out the plays. They're like a team that comes through those tunnels and everybody's cheering and everyone's excited. And the moment they get on the field, the ball drops incomplete. It's fumbled by the running back. The blocker is a holding penalty. And you find yourself marching back on the field instead of going forward. The Apostle Paul is seeing this happen for the Corinthians, and he wants to kind of tell them, hey, let's get back to spiritual blocking and tackling. Let let me help you understand how you're kind of wearing that jersey, celebrating being on the team, but not actually playing that well on the field. And let me help you get back to playing the fundamentals the way that you should. And the same message is there for us today in our church You can follow along if you want to in the sermon notes section at the back of your worship guide. The main idea is this, since God has graciously drafted us, right, brought us into his team, not a military draft here, like a sporting draft, we've been selected. We should absolutely rejoice in our team identity. Nothing wrong with that, with being excited to be a part of God's people. But also remember to actually play the game. The team identity we have is really important. The Old Testament people of God, the Apostle Paul tells us, I had an identity here. And and it makes reference to a couple of things. It may be a little oblique to us if we haven't read through that Exodus story recently or it's unfamiliar to us. You remember they were brought out of Egypt, rescued throughout the scriptures. This is a paradigm of what happens or can happen for each one of us. We recognize our sin, recognize that we're slaves to it. And just like the Old Testament people were enslaved, they were able to be brought out. God brought 
brought them out powerfully. In order to do that, he took them through the Red Sea. He surrounded them while they were traveling in a desert wilderness because they had to leave sort of civilization to go and follow God. It was a, in some ways a risky thing, even though they were tired of the old way initially. And they had to get out and be provided for by God. He provides this manna that comes down from heaven to sustain them. We see those two things referred to here. And we know, perhaps familiar with the story of when Moses strikes the rock and then strikes it again. And God's unhappy with him. Here it's referring to the first time he strikes the rock and the water comes forth. They're thirsty and they need provision. The parallel to the people of God is is really uh, amazing when you look at it. And I like what one commentator Prior says, I don't remember if I put this in your sermon notes or or not, but he says this. He says, Paul is clearly comparing the presumptuous attitude of God's people under Moses to the arrogance of certain Corinthian Christians in his own day. They, too, had been through the waters of baptism with the deep significance this carried for allegiance to the Lord Jesus. They, too, were involved regularly in common meals during which they were both physically and spiritually nourished. These Christians, like the God's people under Moses, were on the receiving end of great blessings. But to receive blessings is by no means the same as to enter into the privilege and responsibilities of the blessings. They had become so absorbed with their spiritual rights that they were now presuming upon the efficacy of their relationship with the Lord. Wearing the jersey, running through the tunnel, coming out on the field, but not really serious or ready to play the game. We got the same thing in the church body, right? We're, we're part of a team, if you want to think about it that way. If you're here and whether you join the church or align with the church, you're kind of part of that team. We've got our provisions too: baptism, the Lord's Supper, those things that are kind of identity markers, celebratory things as a team. We gather for, you know, call it a pep rally, if you will, this time each Sunday, gathering for worship. We gather and get excited about who we are in our faith. We all know it's vital, though, that we take those things out into the world. The personal transformation of our lives is huge. And it's interesting, the Apostle Paul, we didn't read it for today, but it's right at the end of chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians. Let me read this for you so you see that maybe I'm not too outlandish and mapping this all onto sports for us. It says in verse 24 of chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, uh, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. He's talking about a trophy that they would receive when he says wreath. But we, an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body to keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The Apostle Paul is using himself as an example. And he says, I I am an apostle called of the Lord. I have to do these things. I've got to engage in this battle. I can't just wear the markers of the team. I've got to be engaged with it. So, too, for you, the members of the congregation. Well, the sad thing is the Old Testament people had a poor record. The Corinthians had a sort of poor record, if you will, as a team. And we, if we're honest, probably don't have as good a record 
as we'd like to for the season either. Take a look at verses 6 through, uh, well, really through 10. And let's look at the, uh, the record that the Apostle Paul points out from the Old Testament people and see if you can pick out what he's referring to, because these are all part of the Exodus story. He says, now, these things took place as examples for us. He said that twice in these verses, by the way. I mean, could you could you any more say, please listen to this, please apply this in your life? He, he lays it out for us that way. He says, do not be. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I missed the, the, the end of verse six that, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. For the people uh, sat down to eat and drink, rose up and play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. Twenty-three thousand fell. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, nor grumble, as some of them did. What's he talking about there? Well, think back to what you might know a little bit about the Old Testament accounts or, or hear them for the first time. If maybe they're new to you, you remember, of course, one of the things the people of God did as soon as they've been freed and liberated, it seemed like they barely had the, the, the door to the Red Sea sort of closed up on them. And they're they're out there and, and Moses goes away for a little while. Now, they had all this gold that they had gotten from the Egyptians to take with them that God had blessed them with for God's purposes and for the temple, the future use of God's people. Do you remember what they did with that while Moses was, you know, up and gone for a little while, put it together and made a, a golden calf to bow down and to worship to. They were going back to those pagan practices of worship that they'd gone to before. The Apostle Paul is certainly talking about that when he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. He's referring to that direct part of Scripture, Exodus 32. Then verse 8 says, don't indulge in sexual immorality. I know we've talked about this a lot the last few weeks, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this today. But, you know, Numbers chapter 25 tells us that the people were going along to fight battles in God's strength and defeating enemy people. And they stopped off on the way to have immoral relations with the women of the Moabites. They just decided to do that along the way, even though God was going before them and fighting their battles they stumbled in that way as well goes on and tells us in verse 9 don't put christ to the test what's that talking about i think that's certainly when it talks there about serpents in particular you know putting god to the test that's kind of a hard term to understand i think maybe the way to think about it is testing god's patience that would be a better way to think about it when we think of putting god to the test We know that God is gracious. We're going to see in a minute how gracious he is. I'm going to give you a a picture actually from this passage to help us see that. But uh, but we shouldn't presume upon that. Right. The Apostle Paul says in Romans six, after laying out all of what Jesus has done for us to pay for our debts, he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No, the people were thinking if grace is that awesome and covers all our sin, maybe we ought to just kind of keep running away from God instead of turning to him boldly. Apostle Paul says, by no means, by no means. This was true, too, for the Old Testament uh, people uh, putting God to the test. They did with the serpents. We'll read it in a minute. And these serpents came and, and struck them because of that. And then and then lastly, let me mention the last one, nor grumble as some of them did and so be destroyed by the destroyer. The people of God who are interesting. They constantly complain about their situation Post-rescue by God. And I don't know if this resonates with you, but sometimes it feels like a whip 
being a Christian, doesn't it? And we kind of wish we could be freed from this life that we know we're supposed to live. And if we're really honest, we're kind of like the song from old uh, Keith Green back in the 70s and 80s, that kind of wacky Christian rocker. So you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure and you're sorry you bought the one way ticket when you thought you were sure. That's you and me, isn't it? We grumble. We complain about the things of this life, about whatever. When we've got the greatest hope, the greatest thing to celebrate in our life. I'm guilty of it. I know we all are as well. Take a look at Numbers 21 with me. Turn back there in the Old Testament. It's in those first uh, five books of the Bible. It's the fourth one. Numbers chapter 21. And let's see this laid out again. We're we're kind of we're, we're looking through the Old Testament people of God, their record on the field, their record of uh, play, how their season is going, so to speak. And by that, we're looking at what the Apostle Paul wanted to tell the Corinthians and what he probably wants for us to see as well. And so what I want to do is just pause here and remind us that even in these places where the people stumbled, they were shown tremendous grace. Numbers 21, start in verse 4. Read along with me. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Okay. The people spoke against God and against Moses. They were impatient. They tested God. They were grumbling against God. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. That's an interesting sentence. There's no food and no water, but we loathe this worthless food. There was food. They just didn't like the food that they were being provided. Sounds like maybe some of our dinner tables around here with young ones. Uh, But hopefully this doesn't happen at your dinner table. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. And we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take the serpents away. Right. We, we taste the bitterness of our sins sometimes, whether it's a grumbling attitude and we realize we're miserable. And we say, why am I miserable? Maybe it's because I'm grumbling all the time about all the great things that God has done for me in my life. Or we taste the bitterness of sexual immorality. We taste the bitterness of worshiping the things of this world or idolatry. And this happened for the, uh, the people and they received some tangible Uh, judgment, discipline for it. And so they came in repentance, right? This is just a passage about repentance. They realized we we were fools. We were wrong. Help, help us. Moses, help us. Moses prayed for the people and then listen to what happened. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses, Moses made a bronze serpent Set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's a reason throughout the generations of Christian artwork, uh, artistic expression, that the picture of the bronze serpent up on a pole has been one of the favorites. What a picture of the gospel that would be fulfilled in what Christ did. As we quoted earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God took a serpent, the symbol of their consequences for their sin, and put it up on a pole for them to be able to have hope and transformation and life by doing what? They get themselves perfectly together first before God will take them back for their 
faulty ways. No, they just look at it. They just take it by faith and receive it. And that serpent heals them, that look of faith. That's the message of the gospel right here in the middle. So that's our hope for our poor team record is Christ laid down for you and me, held up high for us to see and behold in faith. Then look at the last couple of verses in chapter 10. And we'll uh, close with this because we really want to bring this home by way of application. We've got just a few minutes left. Back in 1 Corinthians, uh, starting in verse 12, actually, it says uh, this. So how are we going? We've recognized there was this team identity that the people had. They wore the jersey, but the record on the field wasn't so good. How do we start blocking and tackling? How do we today as God's people start to to play play a better game, spiritually speaking? Take a look at... uh, Verse 11 through 13, it says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, if we're struggling today with blocking and tackling in the spiritual life, with turning to the Lord instead of continuing to run on the direction towards sin, it may be it may be that we have yet to come and receive Christ for salvation and turn to him in faith and repentance. We, we may not understand the grace of Christ infusing our life with a new love because we've been loved. We may not understand reverence for the Lord because of all he's done for us. We may not understand living for heaven because we haven't really come to understand heaven. We might not understand having Christ as our chief satisfaction because we don't realize that he's that sufficient and that beautiful to satisfy all that we need. So that could be one reason for our struggle with these these things. But if we are in fact, in that place of knowing the Lord and at least beginning to walk with him, we we might stumble with this passage just because we don't buy it. We don't see it playing out in our experience. I've got a, a friend who's struggling deeply with uh, personal issues, depression and so forth. And these things were none of his making, really. They had just come into his life. Many of us, our troubles are kind of of our own making. His are none of his own. But he was joking because he uh, he saw on on Facebook a comment, and I'll sort of edit it for the sake of our uh, crowd here today. But the uh, joke on Facebook was, uh, if God won't test me beyond what I can bear, then he must think I'm a real tough joker. Substitute whatever you want to for tough joker. It feels like that, doesn't it? We know this verse, and we say, If God really, if that's really true, then God must think I can just handle infinite things. How can this really be true? I'm not sure I believe it. Well, take a look at these verses again. All I can do perhaps is just remind us of what's being said and invite us indeed that this is true to put our hope in it. It says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He's addressing that spiritual pride that the Corinthian folks have. And they've got this false perspective that they're going to be able to handle their spiritual life on their own. This is why we talk a lot here at Cross Creek about the gospel and grace, not only for justification, for coming to to salvation, but for sanctification. Right. Because we've got to exert ourselves to grow spiritually. 
It's not going to sort of magically happen by osmosis. We've got to move into small groups. We've got to move into Bible reading. We've got to take out a step of faith and serve in the life of the church. We've got to connect in community. We've got to take steps that way. But, but it's not on us only. God's got to work, too. And sometimes we think, hey, I've got this under control. I'm in pretty good place spiritually. We should take heed if we're in that spot. Then it goes on here. Listen to what this says. I know we, we're coming to a close here. And this is really, really important for us. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So the first thing we say is we say, I can handle this. I got this. That's dangerous ground. The second thing we say is my problem's unique. I'm the only one that deals with severe anxiety and worry. I'm the only one that struggles with my image and how I'm presented to other people and maybe how my body and beauty look. I'm the only one young people who has a hard time telling the truth to my parents. I'm the only one who struggles adults with sexual temptation. I'm the only person that wrestles to rein in my love for material things in order to channel resources to the kingdom of God. We, we, we dismiss it by saying it's a special problem. We're a special case, right? Uh, I've been interacting over the years in ministry with those that struggle with substance addiction of some form. And uh, some of you all here, I know, have been through that journey and wrestled with that as well. But one of the things that that is true for all of us, but it's sort of magnified in the cases of substance addiction is the person feels like they're a special case. I'm the only one that has this kind of struggle. And that's why you get groups like AA groups and so forth. Folks, our life groups, our small groups for men and women, that's what they are. They're groups where you can go in and say and you hear from other people. I'm not the only one that deals with this. And it shuts down that thing that kills our sanctification, that excuse that we're unique. We're the only ones goes on to say that we're not going to be tempted beyond what we would bear. We mentioned that already and that he will provide a way of escape, a way to be able to endure it. I think for myself so often uh, in whatever periods or sequences of temptation that I'm facing, I just don't really believe that, you know, or the ways there. And I don't really want to take it. I don't really want to believe that Jesus can be my hope in life. That he's a cloud over me, that he's a provision for me to sustain me, that he's all that I need. That's why I don't turn towards it. Challenging passages for us today to think through blocking and tackling. I'm so glad I'm glad we've got the symbols of the things of the Lord and the team of the the Lord and the jersey, if you will, to wear together. Those are good things. Nothing wrong with that. To be identified in that way. The Lord Jesus, though, people of God, wants us to take those things out when we leave here at 1115 every week and go on to the field of play. And in this sequence of verses 12 and 13, to live it out, to live out our love relationship with the Lord by turning to him in those moments when we're greatly tempted to turn the other way. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for The fact that these verses tell us right smack dab in the middle of those two verses that God is faithful. And we ask today that you would allow us to believe that more deeply and that it would produce a life transformation 
for each one of us on an ongoing basis. Uh, Lord, that you'd be honored and glorified in our lives that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.